Welcome everybody. Today is Wednesday the 25th of August 2021. It is the special focus meeting of Overeaters Anonymous special focus 100 pounder meeting and today I am delighted to welcome Pia D from Philadelphia and Pia has been in OA since 2014. She will now share her experience, strength and hope with us. All right, thanks. Um, so welcome everyone. And my name is PM, a recovering compulsive overeater, food addict. And it's so great to be here. I'm just kind of blown away how in COVID times I can be on a meeting with 122 people at 11 a.m. Eastern Standard Time and uh, wherever you are in the world. It was really neat to sort of scroll through the pictures and see some people put locations and just to see this is a global phenomenon. It's the global illness. And um, so right now you can see that I'm in my car because um, I'm actually at work because it's 11 a.m. And so I'm, I'm happy to do service. And um, I'm in Philadelphia, so in the United States. And, um, and I just want to tell you what I was like, what happened, and what I'm like now. So, and I don't know, um, Rita, you had the pictures. I don't know at what point you want to show those, but whenever is good for you is good for me. Um, so, uh, so I'm the oldest of uh, three kids, Army family. And um, what I was like is, um, so you see, see my, my little cute self in those overalls. <laughs> um, and, and so I really like these pictures <laughs> because, they, because they really tell a story of who I was at MS, a compulsive eater. Um, and, I, and I would say the first two pictures, the first, the first one with the overall, then probably I would say like five or six, and then the one where um, the second picture with all the curly curls. And um, you see me in my 40s, which is me in the blue suit, me in, um, in the black outfit, me with the blue shirt. And then you see me once I've come in uh, to recovery, which is in with the white top. So that that's kind of the the experience of an overeater. And, and then we can take that down now. Thank you, Rita. Um, so, so that, that was me. And, and so I'll tell you what I was like. So even as a little, little kid, um, you know, I, I think it, it's hard to go back and sort of say, was I com a, a compulsive eater for sure from, I, I was really attracted to sugar for sure. And, um, but I didn't have, um, I, I, when I look back at pictures, um, up until the age of 12, I was just a normal body size, but I, I grew up in a home that was very, very diet conscious, a lot of diet culture. So I'm in my late forties now, and this was the 1970s and the, I was a little anxious kid. And so if people in my house were dieting, which they were, um, I felt attracted to those diets and like, I needed to change something in myself. Um, and I was always kind of looking around for, did, did I need to change something? And this was from a really, really early age on. So the anxiety was there from an early age. And the other thing that was there was there was just a lot of comparison between um, my sister and myself, my parents, but particularly my dad compared us. In retrospect, you know, my sister was two and a half years younger. So she was always going to be in a different place physically, but she also has a different body shape. And I, I kind of think about it as like Venus and Serena Williams. I mean, they, they are two sisters and two totally different body shapes. Um, but what that did for me and that comparison was that very, very early on, I was comparing myself all the time to her and feeling like I wasn't as small and I wasn't as cute and people liked her better and she was sweeter. And 
and all, all of those things. And then the, the third thing that was in, in play for me was that I often wish not only that I had your life, but that not only that I had your life, but that I was you. And I just remember that very, very strongly with friends, like feeling like I wanted to be them with their parents and their families um, and to not be myself. And what I know now since coming into the rooms, like that, that's the basis of the disease, right? I was ill at ease. Um, and there were some real reasons for that uh, environmentally. Um, I'm from an alcoholic family and my, my dad, although he didn't drink at home, we were all aware that he was an alcoholic. And then also, um, the, you know, socially, economically, there was, we, ha- we were in poverty. Um, I was, you know, a black uh, kid in a predominantly white environment, you know, all, all of the ingredients, all of the ingredients of being human were there. And then the, just the way that they showed up for me was in this dis-ease and discomfort. And the first place that I kind of sought refuge um, was this was this diet culture? Now I didn't last on a diet particularly long. Uh, you know, I would last maybe twelve hours. But in my family culture, for a while, there was a sense that if I lost some weight, um, I would be able to earn money for that. So if I lost like five pounds, I would get money for that. And I went, you know, was reading magazines with diet articles and trying to find follow diets and then going to um, doctors to get diets. Now, meanwhile, I really don't, looking back at pictures, I was not even overweight. <laughs> you know, um, I was regular kid size. I was absolutely regular kid size, but it also tells you about the climate of the home where there are not adults intervening on that kind of thinking. And in fact, the adults are encouraging that kind of thinking and, and helping to, to, you know, foster it and, and whatever. Um, and, and so we, I grew up in Germany, um, so we were an army family, and, but we lived off base, and so I went to German schools um, and for my elementary school, so, uh, and so, so some was in the States because, you know, army ships you back and forth, but, um, but most of it was in, was in Germany and, you know, had a really pretty idyllic house, childhood, I would say, outside of the home. So my, my household was chaotic and, and, and difficult in various ways, but outside of the home, had wonderful schooling, had wonderful friends, had wonderful other adults in my life, which was really, really such an important grounding for me, um, and, and spoke a second language, so went to German schools because we lived off base, and, um, and, and all of that was, was really wonderful. And, and what I would just say, like, um, is it also though created this split between my outside life and my inside life. Um, My outside external life, both in terms of the environment, but also just in terms of like who I was on the outside and then how I actually felt on the inside, which was much more grappling with everything. Um, When I was 12, um, we moved from the United States to, uh, we moved, sorry, from Germany to the United States. My parents divorced um, or in the process of divorcing and we moved uh, because my dad's alcoholism had really escalated and it was just kind of untenable. And so we moved. So that was a huge culture shock. I left this, you know, very close circle of friends um, and and moved um, back to the United States and right smack dab in the middle of seventh grade. So if you remember seventh grade, (laughs) you will be able to empathize with what a transition that was um and American seventh grade in particular so uh, you know so I was accustomed to a I moved with a class in Germany so in in a European system we moved like you had a, a class of fifth graders and you were together of like 25 kids and that was kind of your your unit and in American middle school it's hundreds of kids and you're kind of moving all around and it was right in puberty and I, I again I was sort of obsessed with, you know, 
appearance and body weight. And I have these journals that I still have where it sort of has these starting um, weights. Now, not really ending weights, but just kind of starting weights. And I was always kind of on the precipice of, of sort of a, a transformation, as, as you will. Um, and, and so we come into 12th grade and I'm feeling just super self-conscious about my body. And um, now I know like through adolescent development, most girls, you know, girls gain weight at 12, 13, 14. It's totally normal, right? Um, but at the time, especially in American culture where like fat is like a four letter word. Um, what was most striking to me was that I was maybe five, 10, 15 pounds overweight at that point. Like if you want to, but again, developmentally, I could have probably just grown out of that, but, um, but fat is fat in America. So I lost complete perspective on like whether what five pounds was, or eventually I was 50 pounds overweight. And then eventually I was over hundred I was close to 150 pounds overweight, right? And to me in America, fat covers all of that. So you should be scared of all of it. You should freak out about all of it and you should try your darndest to get rid of it at, at all times. Um, and so that was, you know, 12 through 18. Um, and then I went to college and then I just, I was around a lot of people who didn't care about weight, but had no weight issues themselves. And I just started eating. And I think, you know, th there's the part in the, in the Brown book for OA where, you know, we are not like other people. And so everyone else around me is really enjoying food, but I, there, I was in a different class um, altogether. And, and I think for me, and just somewhere in there, I crossed over, um, as we talk about um, in, in the big book of AA. So, so whereas, you know, I had maybe the seeds, the environmental seeds of some of this stuff, um, and certainly the, the sort of in a diseased family and having my own disease from a very early age. But at, at some point, I, I transferred over absolutely from a hard eater to um, like being a full-blown food alcoholic, but, but no, had no context for that outside of diet culture. So, um, so all the way through my twenties and thirties, I was just eating and eating and eating. And then when I came into my forties, um, I was out of grad school at that point. And so that's important because I shifted income classes from like barely having any money ever um, to um, having a job and having access to some money. And I had a really long commute. And um, so I was driving this commute and I was stopping for food. And just, be, I think because the commute was so long and like a lot of us, we know a lot about, you know, diet and exercise and nutritional values and whatever. Um, I, at, at a certain point was just like, I'm, I'm killing myself because I, I'm short, so I'm five two and my weight was climbing and climbing and I saw all that I was eating. Now I will say, I never thought of it as binging because I would leave the house without breakfast and then I would stop for breakfast. So it, it didn't, it wasn't an after school special type binge where you're getting all the things and putting them in the car um, and then eating them all at once. Um, but certainly the patterns that I noticed is I would, you know, go through the drive through with one intention and then end up with all this additional food. Um, it was just, you know, poor quality food at, at that, you know, we don't have to give food a moral value, but certainly it was not, you know, nutritionally oriented food. Um, and I was just drinking vats and vats and vats of large sweet drinks. Um, and about a year before I had this revelation that I, I'm killing myself, I had gone to some outside help to look at my food, but it was he and he was so great in every area but the food. And what was really, really helpful to the, about that is that I had to explain to my to him. So I had to explain to myself what really was the problem. And I think part of it 
that came to my attention was I had started dating someone um, around that time. And I, what I, what I noticed most of all is she could stop, right? Which when you eat by yourself, there's no, like, no one's checking. You're not really thinking about anything except for the eating. Right. And, and so there was a, a, a dessert store in the town that we lived in and I would go to that dessert store with the intention of getting one dessert each, and then they would have a special. So then I would end up with four desserts and then I would eat three and she would eat one. And then you're still maybe thinking like, well, what's the problem with that? Well, the problem with it was that these desserts were as large as my head. <laughs> Right. So that was part of the problem. And, and, and I noticed that like, oh, she can stop or she would take a couple of bites and be like, oh, that's too rich. Right. And we talk about that in our literature. And I was keeping going on. I, I, I was eating all of it. Um, and that wasn't the only thing I was eating in the day either. So there, there, there was that. So, so just sort of seeing someone else and what they were doing and their habits started me thinking about my habits. Um, and then with that long commute to work, I started to feel like, oh, I really, I cannot stop. I want to stop, which is where we get, and I can't stop. Or if I do stop, it's for a brief period. And then we get that demoralization that we talk about where we just keep going and going. Um, and, and so part of with the outside help, what I was able to see in, in trying to figure out like what is really going on, because, because his reaction to all of it was it's just a, and then fill in whatever sugar or substance you want. It's just to this, it's just to that. And I was like, no, I think it's more than that. And so I came up with this term, term, which I called lateral binge. And a lateral binge for me is where if you look at the month of what you're eating, for me, when I looked at the month of what I was eating, I could see that it was completely out of control. Like if you stacked up the number of large scale hot chocolates that I was drinking, for example, and that was just one item, you would see that I was drinking like a ridiculous amount of hot chocolate over the course of the month. And I also was doing that thing that we do as food addicts, which is making these various like bargains and negotiations with myself and then breaking them. So I would say like, well, I'm only going to have X and then I would have X, Y, and Z, right? Um, and, and so by the time I came in, I had had like enough, and on the one hand, self-knowledge avails us nothing. And on the other hand, it was helpful for me to just observe my habits so I could kind of figure out like what is going on. And at least in a descriptive way, sort of say like, I'm having like 30, you know, 20 ounce hot chocolates in a month. Doesn't that seem like a bit much if it's not a meal? And so I, I started sort of started with those things. I didn't have a solution. I just sort of had like a, the beginning descriptions of the problem. Um, now my, I was at, when I came in, in my forties, I, I was at 326 pounds how it never crossed my mind that I was that overweight, I don't really know, but it just didn't really register. Um, I saw myself during this period at one point in a gym mirror, and I saw my really big body and my really tiny head, and, and I didn't recognize my own self. And, and for a minute, it was like, who is that? Um, and not like, you know, not discussed, um, because I didn't have a lot of like um, body checking or I was more disconnected from my body than anything. Um, and I didn't have a lot of body shaming kind of built in because I was in a lot of cultures where, you know, we just didn't care about weight. Um, but I just was sort of marveled at how large I was, particularly because I was short. So I was as short as I was wide, basically. Um, and so then I just realized, you know, I think this might be an eating disorder. And I think that if I could, I have a lot of education. So if I could have solved this 
10 years ago by reading a book, I would have. Um, and that's not where I'm at. And so I started looking for outside help. And then with the outside help, I just said, do you think this is an eating disorder? Right. And I think it's kind of amazing that you can be in full-blown addiction and just not know, you know, just not, you know, just not understand thing. And, and the, the relief of coming into recovery is that I got a completely different vocabulary for understanding this. And I got out, you know, in a way we say we are not a diet and calories club. And I got out of this whole mindset that this was about diets um, or about restriction or about whatever. So, so with the outside help, we started making changes. I got a nutritionist, I got a doctor, I um, started doing all this stuff. And then um, I, made a, a five pounds of sweet potatoes easily because I'd read this piece of advice about making you know all the sweet potatoes at once for the week or whatever and divvying it up and the sweet potato tray was done and it was on resting on the stove and then over the course of the day I was popping sweet potatoes in my mouth and over the course of like you know eight hours I ate this entire tray of sweet potatoes and I was standing in the living room and I just thought to myself I think there's something I think I think there's something else going on here. Um, and because I had cleaned up my food at that point. So like I was eating the kale, I was eating the sweet potatoes, I was doing all the things, but I still felt out of control. And, and I just said to myself, I think there's something called sobriety in the food and this is not it. <laughs> you know, it's not, that's what I knew. And I, I, I had grown up in a lot of 12 step cultures. My family never really took to 12 steps. We had 12 step literature around. Um, my partner now of 11 years has nearly 30 years in AA. So I just, I, it's not that I had anything, but I just had the term, like, I think there's something called sobriety in the food. So I went back to the outside help and said, I want to go to treatment. Um, because it just felt a little too disparate, these various kinds of advices that I was getting from different people, um, different professionals. And so she luckily knew about and knew that I would be open to a 12-step treatment program um, because regular eating disorder recovery is quite different. And so she sent me to a place in Florida. Um, And now I know why they put you on the plane when I was like, well, isn't this, oh, am I frozen? Okay. Um, well, isn't this a bit much, right? Like I didn't know if this was an overreaction, but I, I really got so much out of treatment. Um, and I had already, you know, by the time I ate the sweet potatoes, I had already actually taken out sugar on my own because I had realized that sugar was a wrecking ball through any plan I ever had. But again, I didn't really have terminology for it. I just was like, let me see what happens if I take it out. And what I noticed is that I'm like a little hamster and every sugary thing I just want to put in my big cheek paws and just keep it there in case there's Armageddon and I need need some sugar. So, um, so I, I got to treatment and they said, well, flour turns into sugar. So you also need to take out flour. And I was like, what? <laughs> you know, that, I had not bargained on that. Um, but then I got some new terms, sobriety in the food, abstinence. Um, I got, you know, feeding my body enough. I got, you know, terminology around like um, what, what, what things are part of diet culture, um, what things are part of recovery. Um, so I was there for six weeks and then I left and I wasn't sure if I could stay sober for a day, let alone a, or an hour, let alone a week. And, and now I have, I have seven years back to back, which is a miracle. Um, like, how is that even possible? I, I couldn't stop. I could not stop. Um, and so I just, I, before I left treatment, I got a sponsor and, um, and I just 
you know, my general rule is I don't make any decisions without talking to someone in a, in a way, right? If I buy a new brand of something, I send the label to someone in a way and have them look at it, right? Um, and, and so I don't make any independent food decisions. I started working with a sponsor. We got up through step three and then um, for whatever reason, it just, it, I, I, don't, I don't know, it just, it wasn't working for me and it wasn't working for her. And so we decided that I would switch. And then I worked um, uh, four and five um, with, with a new, new sponsor. Um, and, and it was so funny because I had some things that I absolutely thought I was going to take to my grave. And, um, and this sponsor was a journalist. And I was like, oh God, this is going to end up on the front page of the newspaper, you know? Um, but in recovery, I learned that I just walk through my fears. Like I, I just do what I need to do. And, and one of the things that I learned in, in treatment that made me essentially fall off my chair is I grew up in a family where you did what you felt. So if you felt depressed, then you went to bed for as long as you felt depressed. And in some cases, I don't know, camera right. um, in some cases that might be, um, okay, I can't restart my video for some reason, but anyway. Um, so in, in some cases you could be depressed for years and you would stay in bed for years and you wouldn't take any action. Um, thank you so much for the 10 minute warning. Um, and, and you wouldn't take any action whatsoever. Um, and, um, and so that was how I lived. And then in treatment, I learned we do what we need to do no matter how we feel. And I was like, what? Like, I literally thought I was going to fall off the chair in, in treatment. Um, and so when I got out of, of treatment, so I had this sponsor, I changed sponsor when I um, needed to. I, um, I went to meetings. I went to meetings where I live in a city and there, no one would show up or they would show up late or... And the way that I kind of thought about it is I just kept a little magical compass in my pocket and I would say to myself, which way is recovery? And that's the way I'm going. And the other thing that I did, um, because I, because as a food addict, I'm a fighter and I'm non-compliant and my non-compliance is very polite, but it is non-compliance nonetheless. Um, and so the, the other thing that I did was I said, I'm going to, I asked my partner who had, you know, who has time had however many years um over 20 right I said her 20 and she said um I did everything they told me to do which again is not something that would have occurred to me <laughs> right <laughs> to get a plan and actually follow the plan that's not a thing um and and so I know myself and I know what a fighter I am and I, especially with things like higher power and I could have fought that the, all the living long day right and just and kept eating all along so what I decided was I was going to do everything you guys told me to for a year. So I came in on May 12th, 2014. So on May 12th, 2015, um, I was allowed to question it and look back and see if it worked, but not a moment before. And what that really did for me is it propelled me forward. It propelled me into recovery, um, into working the steps, into getting a sponsor, into going to meetings, into doing whatever I had to do to stay sober food. Um, and I think the transformation, like, especially when I look at my driver's license picture. So now I'm like maybe 147 pounds down from where I started, which is like, who does that? Right. And who does that and keeps it off? Um, and I certainly wasn't doing anything like that in diet culture. I was losing like maybe 10 pounds and then regaining 30, um, which I think is a story that's so common. So physically, 
physically, when I put my driver's license, I, I don't even recognize the other person, like physically that, that transformation and that transformation, it wasn't necessarily quick, but it was the quickest, I think, out of all of the recoveries. And then the spiritual and the emotional came more slowly um, for me. And, and those are still works in progress for sure. Um, and then spiritually, you know, when I came in, I thought I would get like my own, like photo, you know, photograph of God. Right. Um, and then I would say, oh God, it's you. Right. <laughs> That's not exactly what happened. Um, I, I don't, I still, you know, I still work on sort of like who is my age, my higher power. But what I know for sure is that I feel really calmed and protected when I'm in nature. Um, and so I started doing things like forest bathing, which is just where you kind of stand outside and kind of take in nature. Um, I started expanding my natural world. So I recently went on a kayaking trip um, where I went to look at meteor showers. Um, and I, so I did that kind of thing. Um, I'm looking at a kayaking trip that's four days in out on the Carolina coast. And I don't know if I'm going to do that or not, um, but it's ocean kayaking. So I'd have to get ready for it. So I, I've really expanded my connection to nature. I bought a monocular telescope so that I can look at birds most close, more closely. Um, I started, you know, I did something this, this year, like I was, we didn't come from a family that really went on vacations. And so I went on my own seven day vacation to the beach and it was glorious. Um, and some of that was COVID, right? Because it's hard to do things with other people because COVID, but, um, and so that, that's sort of the, this, the spiritual piece. And, um, you know, sometimes I work a more rigorous kind of, um, I, I do meditate actually every day. I do a lot of guided meditations. Um, sometimes I've had a more rigorous morning program that's more structured right now. We just got back into the new school year. So I'm still kind of working on, on building that piece back into my routine. And, um, and then emotionally, I would say like, I'm even keeled in a way that I never have been. And I'm able to talk myself through a lot of things that I wasn't able to before. And, um, and just what I really, really love, I go to a lot of AA meetings, um, is this idea of sober references. And so in recovery, I, our, what the water heater above us broke and completely flooded the apartment and we had to move out. And if you food prep, you know what a pain that is to have to move somewhere else to do your food prep, you know, and we had to move out for 30 days. And like, I stayed sober. Um, I have multiple sclerosis and I had a relapse of the MS and I was hospitalized and I stayed sober. Um, we're in a pandemic. I'm sober. <laughs> food, you know? So, so I really love, um, I go to a lot of AA because I can see long-term recovery there. And I go to a meeting where there's someone who has 46 years and he's not the only one in double digits, right? So it's 46 years, it's 26 years, it's 36 years. Um, thank you so much. I see that five minutes. Um, and, and so that gives me hope. And that's what I really needed. I, I needed hope that I could recover. Um, I pay attention to a lot of other things in eating disorders that's outside the rooms and outside of our, our discussion here. Um, but what I found there is hope. I don't follow what they do um, because they're, you know, moderation and not the all these other things, but, but the idea of that you can recover, I, I, I really, really love. Um, and then I just feel like there's a lot of grace in the steps because I, when I did, you know, I, I was still kind of thinking about whether I need to go back and do more of an eight and nine, but when I did the initial eight and nine, I made some mistakes there that I could see immediately. Um, and, 
you know, and then as a result, got another boatload of resentment, which is not what should be happening in eight and nine, right? Um, and 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 could and can just see that even when I've made mistakes, there's been a lot of grace. Like I still have, like I've decided that you know we talk about spirituality as a wide highway, um, or as as a as a door that you know is open to all of us. And and what I see in recovery too is that as long as I'm willing to stay the course, uh, there's grace in recovery even when I make mistakes. Um, and then the last thing I'll say is I've been going home more frequently. I had sort of a break from home for various reasons. And I've been going home because my mom's not well and da, da. And I can just, I, I just keep saying to myself, is this the picture of sobriety that I want them to see? Right. Um, or I'll say to myself, okay, this is a moment when I need to leave my frustration in the car. And so I'm going to leave it in the car and then I'm going to go in the house. Right. <laughs> and all of that is, is recovery. And everything in my life has changed due to recovery, including um, how I, you know, do a road trip. So, but my family's house is, uh, you know, it's like an eight, nine, 10 hour drive. And it's like the way that I used to do that drive is drinking, you know, Coca-Cola all the way, right. Eating a million candy bars. Um, and now I have my abstinent meals with me. I'm making recovery phone calls. And then I also just realized that I need to travel in such a way where I'm not keying myself up. Like, so by doing the whole trip in one stretch and then like arriving exhausted and being irritable. So now I take breaks, I stretch, um, and all of that is, is recovery. And, and I hold myself to the bar of, is this a picture of recovery? You know, is it attraction and not, and not, am I attracting people with this image that I'm giving right now or how I'm reacting to this? Um, and then the, the last, last thing I'll say is just that I just got, you know, a, I got a promotion a few years ago at work and now I have another promotion. And so I'm in a, in a big leadership role and I'm in this role because people can see my recovery. They don't know what they're seeing, but they know they see something. Um, and, and so I'm, I'm really grateful to be here. Um, you know, I, I'm at a university in a pandemic with all the things that that brings. I'm in upper leadership um, and I'm able to do all of that sober. It, it's so nice to spend the morning with you all. Thank you for letting me share. Pia, thank you so much for the share. I will close the recording now.